0: The 87th Precinct podcast is 2018, and it's our first podcast of the new year. We've buffed Kenneth's faux walnut veneer. <laughs> We've what? We've buffed Kenneth's faux walnut veneer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, giving him a new look of paint, and he's ready to do some calculating about what the scores are for the next few Ed McBain 87th Precinct novels. And the one we're looking at today is The Heckler, Ed McBain's second book from 1960. An amazing story, really, and it's got all sorts in, not least, the introduction of a very, very important character for the future of the series. Before we get going on that, though, I would like to mention that we have obviously got our Twitter feed and our Facebook page and we have our website and blog. Today was one of those rare occasions where things go really well with social media because I was flicking through, checking references to people who'd said something about Ed McBain and 87th Precinct, as I do, and I found someone who said, and I quote, anyone got a list of the 87th Precinct books (laughs) in the right order? That's what our website's for. It's on there. The website's been updated recently as well, so I've been including, as we go through each book, extra information that you can click through on there. That's hark87thprecinct.blogspot.com. And that should be a good resource for that. So that was good. It was nice to be able to point someone in the right direction there. And that was someone from Sweden
1: who's mm-hmm, uh, trying to collect
0: all the books. So that's... I mean, it's a bit of a challenge in the UK to collect them. Mm. I wonder what it's like trying to collect them in a Scandinavian country, really. I don't know whether it's any more or less difficult. I'm,
2: I'm really not sure.
0: I yeah. I suppose if you're collecting English editions, that's probably the easiest thing. But perhaps if you... I don't know how widely they've been translated. I should imagine quite widely now.
2: Yeah, I know Monsieur um, Wal and Walu, who I've definitely mispronounced um, of the Martin <laughs> Beck series, um, were were big fans. So I don't yeah. know if they read them in translation or if they read them in the originals.
0: But, yeah, uh, I don't know. But you know, the hunt for the secondhand books, as we've said before, is always part of the the joy of the thing. Absolutely. Because, so anyway, there we go. Check out the website if you want any information on on the eighty seventh Precinct series. I try and keep as much stuff on there as possible, get it updated as we go along. But now we return to the matter in hand, which is the heckler. And I am joined, as always, by Stephen Royston. Hello. And Morgan Brown, who you've already heard these two. <laughs> Why, hello there. Happy New Year, gentlemen. Happy New Year, It's still yeah. January. It is, we just can about. still say it. Uh, when you're officially not allowed to say Happy New Year, is it just after the first time you meet someone for the first time in the New Year?
1: No, because imagine you didn't see somebody till December. You wouldn't be able to say <laughs> Happy New Year then, would you? No,
0: that's you true. That's First
1: true. couple of weeks in January after that. After it, that, it's it gets
0: been weird, bit, so I shouldn't have said it. Yeah,
1: I oh, know, it have made everyone uncomfortable, oh, with, not, including yourself
0: i right. and the <laughs> listeners. Oh, God, I'm on the back foot right from the start. it
1: would be all right if, they really, if they're listening to this early next year. That'll be fine. Okay. So know, I'll, I'll put Happy on, New Year for that. I'll
0: put listeners. it on the Twitter feed and don't, don't listen to this until January 2019 <laughs> and then only between the 1st and the 14th yeah. of the month. Yeah, correct. That, yeah, that would seem appropriate then. Goodness knows what book we'll be on by that point. I can't, I can't do the brain sums. No, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get on to the heckler because I haven't got anything else. Part- oh no, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I have got to mention. And this is again something I came across on, on social media because of some of the things I follow through our Twitter feed. And I did share this. On the 17th of January this month, there was an article I saw. It was a photo article from a newspaper about a detective who's retired. She's 95 years old. She just had a birthday on the 17th called uh, Detective Mary Fitzgerald. And she retired from the, the cops in uh, New York in 1983. She joined the force in 1952 and was one of the first women detectives. Right. And so her story is quite important. She was promoted to detective in 1959 and became detective second grade in 1968. So she was one of the first oh. women to do so. So when Ed McBain was writing these books, mm. which at this point are still very light on, on female cop characters, yep. he would have been around getting to know cops, getting to know people in, in the force to get his background information, which I think he did lots more of early on and then hmm. sort of didn't do as much later. She'd have been around then and... and Maybe she would have been the inspiration for someone like Eileen Burke, Detective oh. Eileen Burke, who was a detective awesome. in in one story we've seen so far.
1: Yeah, because yeah. she disappears for quite a long time, actually. Well, yeah. she's
0: not truly a cop of the 87th Precinct. No, she, she's not. She's only on no, she she. loan, isn't she? That's right. But... Mary Fitzgerald herself was in all sorts of different squads, the pickpocket squad, the intelligence division. The pickpocket squad. I know, it just that sounds a bit Dickensian, <laughs> doesn't totally it? The pickpocket squad.
1: When you started this story, I was very confused because I thought you were suggesting that this 95-year-old detective <laughs> had just handed in her shield and <laughs> like... Just now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's a bit don't like... know what squad she'd be on at 94 years old.
0: Yeah, well... Anyway, I thought that was a nice story, and it just sort of tallies in with the world we're talking about mm, still. As well. yeah. And the subject of, of women in McBain books is something that I suspect is going to come up in this discussion. <laughs> well, I know it is because I'm going to mention it. So, let's get into the heckler, really. Let's get I'm, heckling. See, that's a funny thing. Was this term heckling the heckler? I mean, it's it a just bit, se- feels a bit weird, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of an odd name, because heckling's only a, a byproduct of what's at... A foot,
0: isn't it? Yeah, because we think of heckling as being someone at a comedy mm. stand-up comedy show yeah. just going, oh, you shit.
1: <laughs> but this guy's going, yeah, you're going to die yeah. unless you get out of that loft, stupid loft.
0: <laughs> stupid loft. You st- he hates loft-based material. <laughs> yeah.
1: Stupid loft. That'd be more of a heckle, wouldn't it? You're yeah. you, you, raskin' your loft, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your dresses are shit. But what would the alternatives be? The 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 threatener.
0: Yeah, I know. It's it sounds mm. like
1: a a uh, Edward Woodwood episode of The Equalizer or something.
2: The there. Equalizer, the threatener, threatener.
0: threatener. Edward Woodward.
1: Mm-hmm. Or uh, what's the Jason Statham movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from like the late noughties? Yeah, Before he
0: gets given the role of Parker.
1: So yeah. Oh, my God. The heck like, yeah, always, always a funny. Uh,
0: so perhaps it was part part of the vernacular at the time, the must language. Have been. So because otherwise it would have make no <laughs> make no sense for him to use it as the title no. and it descriptively as the notion of someone who rings up people and threatens them down the phone, and you don't know whether they're a crank or they're oh. serious.
1: I don't want to be jumping ahead to the books, though, but
0: as as books
1: go, the cover of mine looks. Absolutely ridiculous in that the, <laughs> the, the, the the title is the heckler and then there's just some feet on now, some leaves hold, without trousers on hold and it if there. you were to <laughs> get this book you'd be like, What on earth?
0: Who killed that scout? So well, somebody he heckled him to death. <laughs> yeah. I know, well we'll go into that in more detail. <laughs> <on> the bonus <laughs> the bonus. But, uh, I think
1: it, it makes the title even more ridiculous than that, it, you that know that would be yeah. um, elsewhere. Because at least yours there is, hmm. like a telephone. And that is yes, so yeah. that is the medium of the heckling in this. It Indeed. wasn't in-person heckling. No. Various businesses. It wasn't,
0: it wasn't just literally stood outside these buildings <laughs> just shouting at them. Get, get, out, your get, get
1: out your loft. Get um,
0: out your shit
1: loft. But yeah, it was various telephone calls heckling various different businesses dotted around the 87th Precinct.
0: All of which are situated near to or above something that Contains wealth or value, mm. such as a bank or a jade merchant or something like that, a jewellery store as well They're is a one of them.
2: As we, the reader, sort of realised before the uh, cops of the eighty seventh actually kind of cotton on to it, really.
1: Well, the yeah, the because the the red headed league gets a mention very early in this. Well, before,
0: um, we, before we go too far, into the show, kind
1: of give the game away somewhat mm. intentionally we've,
0: we've got a lot of sherlock holmes stuff to cover in this really in a way mm. because there's very specific mention of the red-headed league as you say there is yeah but we should just say it up front this is the novel that introduces the character the deaf man and he returns several times to play the 87th precinct mm. he's their super villain really yep. I mean, he's not in every one by any means. In fact, it is only a handful of books. Mm. But he's because of the nature of this character, he's very significant in the series. And it gives Ed McBain licence to really do twisty-turny <laughs> plots and, and have fun with the character as well. Well, it,
1: it also... The, the thing reading this back, I, I would say, more than any other, is... you. You must spend at least half the book uh, with this with the villain, don't you, and then plotting the crime, Absolutely, yeah. which is a total departure, I think, from yeah all the others where mm. you're in, you know, you're left in the dark, aren't you, by the
0: you get you get given his procedure it, as much as you get given the yeah, cops' yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah which fact, is probably more, yeah, which, more which is a,
2: yeah, you mainly get the, the cops kind of scratching the heads and then lots of the the the, the uh, death man um, creating these ever more elaborate kind of webs of uh, intrigue.
0: But our first sort of Sherlock reference is that the, the obvious comparison, and whenever you do any research mm. or look into anything about the deaf man, is he is the 87th Precinct's Moriarty figure, which sort of casts Steve Carella almost as Holmes, which is mm. not really that, but mm. he is more like a Moriarty. Now, I mean, Steve-O, you're a well-read about Sherlock mysteries. and Well, yeah. Although I know we've all read them, you've huh. certainly studied them a bit more than us. So what's, what's Moriarty's role in, in Sherlock Holmes? I mean, Well, yeah, he's, he's quite funny in because
1: he, he's in and out. He's kind of built up to be this total nemesis in a very short period of time in the books. It's a bit strange, really. His, his uh, legacy he's is not... perhaps outlived, not mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, it's, not, he's not, as though, he's it's not as though he's in every single book or even a majority of the books. He's just kind of mentioned and then all of a sudden he's you know throwing Holmes off a, uh, off a waterfall. Mm. So yeah, it's a bit odd, odd that way. Whereas this, uh, the relationship with the deaf man's a bit kind of, you know, he keeps coming back and causing yeah. havoc at different periods of time. But yeah, uh, in the Sherlock Holmes novels, uh, short stories, uh, uh, Moriarty was a um, kind of a more of a mastermind coordinator rather than somebody yeah. going out pulling off the uh, the uh-huh. capers himself.
0: Pulling off capers, pulling <laughs> off capers, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but, but
1: also the, the, the fact that all the Sherlock Holmes canon is all over the place in terms of chronology. Mm. It, yeah. uh, it allows some of the later books to then kind of shoehorn Moriarty in as though he was somehow responsible. But where you meet him and he's actually uh, in order, yeah. Right. Uh, the order of the books was written.
0: He's obviously very important to people who've adapted Holmes. Yeah, it's something mean. really easy to latch onto and they keep... Using Moriarty to varying degrees of success, mm. it must be said. I uh, think
1: there's 56 short stories, I think, or f- 50, something like that. And I bet he's not in more than pff, three or four. Yeah, I, you I was, was going to say that low, low number.
2: I was going to say I've read quite a lot, and I don't think I've ever read a single one no. with Moriarty. And the only thing I've read with Moriarty in was that Anthony Horowitz um, oh, okay, one. Yeah. Which just felt like he tried to cram in every single thing that had ever been in any Sherlock Holmes story into a single thing. It was like a sort of greatest hit medley of bits from Sherlock yeah, Holmes.
1: in fact, thinking about it, in terms of him being a character where he has dialogue, it might even only be one.
0: So just the Back Falls story? Yeah,
1: the final problem. Mm. Yeah, that would be interesting to note anyway. So oh. yeah, more more of a cast of uh, a longer shadow.
0: yeah. But, and so the nature of Moriarty is every supervillain gets compared to him. So-and-so is the Moriarty of so-and-so else. And that's what they say about the deaf man. The interesting thing in this, and I, I'd be interested in what, to look forward to the, the other books that he's in, is he's never referred to with capital letters. He is, in this story, because it's the way the police see him, they only know the deaf uh-huh. man. And the other people who he's working with only know that he's the deaf uh-huh. man, even though he does use a fake name for certain purposes and it's a trick name. Yeah. And it's all lowercase deaf man. But I think as people refer to him later in terms of his character, he becomes uppercase deaf Absolutely. man. Like almost like a superhero. <laughs> and he's a brilliant character. One of the one of the really good things about him is that he's really, really well he's Another Moriarty thing, Moriarty's background is is academic, isn't it? Yeah. He's he's maths and stuff like that, isn't he?
1: Yeah, they're both smart-arses, aren't (laughs) they? They're totally,
2: uh, utterly confident of their impending supreme victory. He certainly very Um, much enjoys um, lauding his intelligence and and mastery of, of... all these different uh, things over all of his underlings. Yeah, ex- exactly. And so they, book, they share that trait, It comes out yeah. in the
0: form of, of a really detailed description of the odds of a poker game, mm. which I'm rubbish with maths at the best of time. <laughs> <laughs> and you read it and you're thinking, blimey, is, is this right or not? I'm sure it is. I'm sure if you're working out. And also the odds on... How his plans going to come to fruition in terms of how many police are available to do what job and what places as well?
1: I'm fairly sure if you were playing poker against him and he was talking like that, you would just punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a kind of a miracle <laughs> like, that no one does during <laughs> that like scene, scene. So because, annoying. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's
0: very very early on in the book. Yeah, yeah, that
1: kind of sets out his character quite well. That scene doesn't it? When he's oh, playing poker with his. Um,
0: it's. I think it's his, in like uh, chapter three straight yeah, away with
1: his. Um, his fellow heisters.
0: Heist, yeah. The um, heist squad. Um, Three of the men in the poker game were getting slightly PO'd. <laughs> I bet they were. Given the, the violence and, and graphicness of some of this book, to, to not say pissed off is <laughs> quite an interesting one. But I, I, do you know, actually, that might, that might be quite a clever thing by the writer in terms of him keeping it quite... Oh well, it seems a bit like the other ones and then it gets the ramps up some of the graphicness and how it ends is is amazing. Mm. That's our big first sort of Sherlock Holmes link into this and we will come to at the at some point the other main one which is to do with the red-headed league as Steve mentioned before. Mm. One of the things I like very very much about McBain books and we've talked about it a bit is the reproduction forms and procedures and like where they you see these different messages and it's all done as graphics. Chapter 8 in my book is where this becomes like, this is like the the pinnacle of McBain reproductions. There's one chapter in this book which is simply, other than one large paragraph reporting a conversation over a police radio, is entirely made up of reproduction forms and documents. That's McBain doing that to the absolute nth degree. (laughs) He's just given up on trying to actually write any descriptive stuff and he has gone completely through procedure by reproducing forms. Central complaint desk report, case report, what else have we got? Evidence tag, teletype, telex machine message, something like that.
1: Is there as many as those in the later box? I'm trying to
0: remember
2: now. Were they a bit of a thing of this? I feel like it kind of tails
0: off a bit Mm. later on. Possibly um, as communication changes in the future where it's more direct for communication, there's more means of actually just speaking information Probably yeah. via the radios, via mobile communication, via computers. I don't know, is there any computer screen reproductions and things like that. We're a long way off finding out. but yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like he's
2: just sort of phased that out a little bit by the time you get sort yeah. of away through the 80s, certainly.
0: The books are a lot bigger, so he's got more story and character to pack into. I, no,
2: no, I guess normally novels where the Death Man features, you tend to still get a bit of that because there'll normally be some kind of incredibly yeah. obtuse clues that have to be reproduced. But Eight black horses. That's yeah, that's the, got some yeah. tremendous uh, things.
1: I like in Chapter 7 in this, though, the... Um... The ferry, yeah, the ferry timetable. You know, he yeah. must have sat there, or <laughs> yeah. if he had a, an assistant to help. You know, I don't know. Because um, I think he had like somebody who helped him with his research, oh. so he might have just nicked an actual one and just changed the thing on the top for all. That, Possibly, so, but, yeah. yeah. Well, but, I was, uh, it's a great attention to me. I've been <laughs> looking at
0: a timetable for a, a train, an American train, because I'm thinking of going on holiday and, and perhaps doing one of the big train journeys. And I was looking at this timetable and. It is one of the most complex documents I have (laughs) ever seen this Amtrak train timetable because it's got a train that joins a train in the middle of it and you have to sort of work it around. There's arrows with brackets. There's all these icons. arrivals go, you go from a direction in one way, then you have to read the timetable the other way around if you're going back. Oh, (laughs) I was confused. (laughs) Needless to say that this train, if I do get it, to look at the lovely lakes between New York and Chicago... Well, we'll pass them while I'm fast asleep at 20 past four in the morning, so
1: hey ho. Although you'll be going near that uh, mountain range that we talked about. The Adirondacks.
2: And, uh,
0: Adirondacks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is that that, that that how it goes? I, I forgot already. No, oh, the Dodi <laughs> <laughs> Um But
0: you also go past the, the, the Finger Lakes, which is a reference in a Saturday Night Live series of sketches, which is my favourite sketch. <laughs> the Finger Lakes. <laughs> The Maharel sisters all the way from the Finger Lakes. So, people might get that reference. They might not. I enjoyed saying it, though. That's the important thing. It is indeed. <laughs> so, the book ramps up quite quickly with huh. not only these threatening phone calls coming through to someone that Maya knows from a, a family perspective. Maya Maya is sort of involved at the start because he knows this guy. The guy comes to see him.
1: Mm.
0: But within a chapter, we've also got a corpse. And this corpse is found in the park on April Fool's Day. So we can, mm-hmm. this is quite well dated, this book, because the threats are made, get out by April the 30th, they've started by April the 1st, and then there's lots of dates mentioned in there, which nerds like me like. Mm-hmm. It's quite, well, I suppose the book lasts exactly a month then, doesn't it? it a little bit more, I think it goes into uh, two weeks into May, I think, from my recollection. Well, let's see what I've got on my little list here. Andy Parker. <laughs> let's talk about Andy Parker. Detective Andy Parker. <sighs> doesn't hey. have doesn't have much to do in this book.
1: No, he's kind of in it initially quite a bit, and then he just disappears off to a flipping candy store, and you don't hear from him again. <laughs> Oh yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> they just do, sideline a few detectives in this. Given that by the end of the book they've brought back everyone, yeah. the entire police department's been recalled from leave, and they're all working together because of the scale of what happens at the end of it. Andy Parker, he just leaves him in here so he can make fun of the fact that yeah. even when he's. Dressed as himself, he looks like he's on a stakeout as a slob. <laughs> yeah. He might be
1: better to talk about in detail in the next one because isn't he heavily involved in the. I think the next I story. believe so,
0: yeah. yeah. And the next story also features Detective Frankie Hernandez who. Cropped up last time, didn't he? Yeah, he's been he? in, in a For co- the very
1: first time.
2: He's, he's, has he been in a couple? I, I think he's been in so a couple far. by
0: this point. He uh, progressively
2: becomes. Um, uh, he, he was. Uh, the unwitting trigger in a little um, oh, bit of fisticuffs but, yeah, between yeah, uh, right. Steve and, and uh, Andy Parker earlier, and
0: yeah. And well, this and the, is the
1: most he's been in to date. I, I
0: mean, he does get a good chapter, an inter not an interrogation, an interview chapter in this with Steve hmm. Carella, but he's also just given a job by Captain Frick. There's a scene where Captain Frick, in my mind, just wanders into the squad room completely <laughs> lost, doesn't know what's going on, and just like, "Where's Where's Frankie Hernandez? Where is he?" And he's just given a sort of job with the Puerto Rican community, which oh. is basically his lot in life oh, yeah. Yeah, in that job. You sort of sideline Andy Parker, but you see him. You sideline Frankie Hernandez, say for the little bit of work he does oh. with Steve Carella and the chapter after. You don't see Cotton Hawes in this at all. No, Cotton Hawes and Brown
1: must be the two who were up in Washington on the,
0: on the training FBI course, course mm-hmm. or whatever. What do you reckon they were doing on the FBI training course? In 1960? I um, don't
1: know. Bomb calls, maybe? Well, they would have been very useful down exactly. here, Yeah, they? <laughs> that's, that's why. I'm, yeah. I don't know. Some, no. Something well, like that. neither do
0: Because we're not in the FBI. And they're not listening. They're not listening to this. Not no. at all. I they're not. Um. They're not that's, the sad, <laughs> that's the sad thing. We need the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot. The city, as usual, is a character in this. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And one of the things about this is, that lots of the stories based around the idea that the city is changing quite significantly. Mm. It's being redeveloped, and I believe that is actually what was happening in New York at the mm-hmm. time. So this is again, it's it's a parallel New York. So lots of places were getting bulldozed, rebuilt, lots of urban renewal and development, which happened in lots of places in 1960. And mm. it happened oh, in the God. UK a lot because places like Liverpool got bombed to shit yeah. in the war. And also as sort of new thinking, new ideas, new technologies. But obviously it was happening in cities like New York to quite an extent. And that sets the scene for everything that's happening. It's the, it's the chaos and confusion that's already there, the baseline of when mm. some development work goes on and roads are closed and there's buildings and there's all this, that and the other happening as well. So that's quite interesting. And according to this story, that there's a statue of Daniel Webster in Grover Park. Mm. It's mentioned very early on in this. Do you know who Daniel Webster is? Um, Not Kevin Webster. From Coronation Street. Not Kevin Webster from <laughs> Coronation Street, no. Um, I, I have like no I idea, but no. He names, says there's a statue of Daniel Webster, and I thought, well, that must be someone. Mm. And I wonder if, if our American listeners all know who he is. Apparently he is, or rather he was, oh. a senator and served under a couple of presidents as US Secretary of State. Hmm. So we're talking like the late... Seven, well, he was born in 1782, so we're talking 1840s, basically. He's, he's quite a big and important figure. Oh. But Central Park has a massive statue of him in. Oh, oh, so right. Grover Park and Central Park, again, they're absolute parallels. Where oh. They've got the statue of Daniel Webster in there. Would that make him Secretary of State under James K. Polk? Well... <laughs> No, it wouldn't, but that's a very good guess. You can have you can have two more guesses at t- the two presidents that he was Secretary of State under. Uh,
2: Martin Van Buren?
0: No. Ah! <laughs> I'm stumped. You can have my <laughs> guesses. Yeah. John Tyler mm. and Millard Fillmore.
2: Ah. No, I wouldn't have got either of those. No.
0: <laughs> it's just not part of our history lessons growing up. Would Polk and Van
1: Buren be earlier or later then?
2: Van Buren, I think, was earlier. Um, James K. Polk, 1844, I think. Yeah. Uh, just thinking... Well, I have no the, doubt that... The they might be Giant Song. They wouldn't have lied to me. Um, they would have known him, though. They would have known Yeah, him.
0: Daniel Webster would have been around for a lot of that. Mm. So, what happens in this book, then? What happens in this book? We have the corpse. We've got these threatening phone calls. We've got, basically, a bank heist being planned. The By the deaf we man. We have, him. And the deaf man has a sequence in this book where he decides to pick up a girl. And it's quite difficult to read, mm. really. I found it, especially because I'd, I'd started considering some of this writing in, 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 a, in a different way, and the sequence where he meets this girl in a bar and he sort of planned it a bit like one of his crime schemes, which we assume <laughs> he must have done some of these before. He's... He sort of plans it and, and meets her. And he sort of targets her. He just gets this girl drunk. And and the way it's described in the book, it's almost like he's drugged her to the yeah. point of, like, he can do what he wants with her. It's horrible, it's really. It's
2: horrible. It's very, very uncomfortable reading, yeah. So
0: you have this very clinical and precise crime figure who applies this to human beings as well, and he does not care about human beings one bit, whether it's taking someone to have sex with or people who stand in the way of him and the money that he wants. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit scary, that one. And the way they dealt with it in the TV version that we've, we've just watched is, yeah. <laughs> funnily enough, in the 1961 TV series, The 87th Precinct, they don't have a sort of drunken, drugged-up sex party scene. What they do is they retain the character of Lottie Constantine and he just takes her hostage, basically, yeah. and just binds her to him by bullets and... Throwing knives across apple the room. Apple knives. Apple knives. The deaf man peels an apple in that episode and doesn't doesn't eat any of it. Just seems to keep chopping bits off and then throws his knife across the room. He does. I yeah. hope he disinfects it afterwards. Otherwise, if he keeps eating fruit, he'll get all sorts. <laughs> so the deaf man on TV, played by uh,
1: Robert Vaughan. Yeah, Robert Vaughan.
0: Man from Uncle. Only two people have ever played the deaf man in any media other than the books, where he's played by himself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Robert Vaughan in the TV series, and in the film Fuzz, I suspect will be an an exciting highlight when we get oh, yes. to it. He's played by Yul Brynner. Amazing. Amazing. All right. So those are the two people who've played the deaf man on, on TV. And... and
1: they're both actually deaf in
0: real life. Are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping that I could find out a load of interesting... Information about them or whether there's any trivia, but I don't really know much about either of them other than, huh. say, you know, Robert Vaughan's career, although it was in film to some extent, it was Robert, mainly a TV career. Huh.
1: Robert Vaughan was very political, a big supporter of the Democrat Party, huh. anti Vietnam War kind of guy. Chums Come, with the Kennedys, I think.
0: According to some of the trivia submitted by our that uh, Robert Vaughan played three different US presidents on screen. I don't know who they are anyway. Polk Van Buren. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Tyler, Millard Fillmore. <laughs> and uh, our friend Andy Davies, Dr Andy Davies, who's contributed before, said, for some reason every time I think of Robert Vaughan, I think of Battle Beyond the Stars, a film title which makes no sense as the fighting takes place in, not beyond space. But in that film he plays exactly the same character as he does in The Magnificent... Meh? <laughs> In the Magnificats. (laughs) I've just just invented a new Disney film. Excellent. Not the Aristocats. The Magnificats. Magnificats. Yeah. I think that's Latin, isn't it, Magnificat? I believe so. Um, As he does in The Magnificent Seven, which obviously also starred Yul Brynner. So yes, they obviously worked together. So two deaf men in one ensemble. Amazing. As it were. And on the subject of Yul Brynner, our our friend Robin said, Yul Brynner starred in an anti-smoking film from Beyond the Grave. His first words in this were, I'm Yul Brynner and I'm dead. Mm. <laughs> I vaguely remember that, vaguely. Crikey. But he was a robot, wasn't he? all along, well, all all along absolutely all
2: evil cowboy robot.
0: I don't know who you'd cast as the deaf man now. Say you were going to make this Ooh. book now. The trouble you have with thinking about the, the characters. Well, I think well. Robert
1: Vaughan was very well cast, actually, because he... He's a he's a smooth operator, isn't he? And that's what Robert Vaughan was very good. You can see why he was cast. Yeah, he was a good um, pick for that. Yeah, the somebody um, suave, you know, good-looking yeah, guy.
2: Suave with, yeah, sort of a, a certain personal magnetism, but also this kind of, like... Nastiness. Intensity? Yeah. yeah, and intensity, and then... Yeah, that sort of that edge of vanity about his, br- his own brilliance, which always ends up being his o- undoing, really, as well. Yeah. Yeah, difficult to
1: say. Well,
0: somebody of that ilk, anyway. Yeah, you do need that, that intensity. Uh, the Deaf Man uses the name El Sordo in this, and that's actually how the character's credited in the TV episode mm. as well. And El Sordo is a joke name, which is a trope of what the uh, Deaf Man likes to do, mm. which is come up with something clever, set stupid riddles, use Shakespeare or. Sherlock Holmes or whatever to to confuse and confound his enemies. In this one he's not anticipating actually deliberately winding the police up. He's u- he's trying to distract them. Mm. In future books he gets a bit sort of obsessed with the idea of actually targeting the 87th precinct. Yeah, it becomes yeah. A, a
2: more of a, a vendetta really every time, doesn't it? Well, he's yeah. determined to get
0: yeah, one over on them. And he nearly does in this because he nearly robs us of one of our main characters again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You'd think for such a good cop, Steve Carella would not get shot so often,
2: yeah, it's one it, of it one of his few failings is is uh, inability to avoid being shot repeatedly,
0: and you don't know whether he's going to survive. I mean our spoiler policy of not having a spoiler policy, I think you know that Steve Carella's in future books, listener, dear listener, a bit so of a giveaway he does get shot, and there is a lot of his comatose thoughts mm-hmm. going on in this, so where the deaf man works out his plan out loud and tells us all about his playing the odds. Steve Carella does his in his head whilst in a coma and can't really help anyone. <laughs> but it's another interesting way of, of looking at the character. and, yeah. and
1: It yeah. sets, sets up the uh, very personal battle they have in future deaf man yeah, installments, doesn't it? yeah the uh, the shooting, and he gets his head bashed in by the butt of a
2: shotgun as well. He Ouch. does indeed, yeah. It, it doesn't sound good, I mean, no, no, I'm no. surprised from the description of it that he recovers as well as he does. Mm.
0: Yeah, because in the TV episode, they just, um, they shoot Bert Kling instead. <coughs> Bert. And just ship him off to the hospital, but he's alright within a couple of weeks, as Absolutely. we're led yeah. to believe by the time frame of that story.
2: I'd, I'd like to imagine that the sort of pirouette that he did when being shot <laughs> might have uh, dampened the impact of the bullet it's, somewhat.
0: Yeah it's beautiful he turns, <laughs> he spins around to see the deaf man it's, he's like Nureyev <laughs> or another ballet dancer who I can't think of anymore <laughs> think of any more n- ballet dancers? Uh, uh, Nijinsky? Nijinsky there, there you go there we go. What
1: about that guy um, with l- lots of hair the guy with lots Will, <laughs> of hair oh god what's he called uh, the ballet
0: dancer with lots of hair yeah like um English guy English ballet oh. dancer with lots of hair well, this sounds he, uh, like a crossword clue we'll let someone proceed we'll let someone else, fill, we'll let someone else <laughs> fill that gap in if you could think of the English belly dancer yeah. with lots of hair that's. It Steve... looks a bit like um <laughs> it, looks it looks a bit like the singer with loads
1: of hair um, the small guy from the 70s. <laughs> Uh, disco guy.
2: Yeah, 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 you, you're not thinking of Wayne Sleep, yeah. yeah? Yeah, was, yeah was he
1: a ballet dancer?
0: Uh, yeah, it's yes, to some there extent. You go. And he had yeah. lots of air. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't a, a classical ballet <laughs> not dancer. Not strictly. He was ballet trained, was who, who was he. the guy? I think he looks like. Who uh, does Wayne Sleep look like?
2: Uh, uh, the little... Leo Sayer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. He got to, him. we got to the end
1: of <laughs> it. You spun like. Leo Sayer.
2: Ne- never let it be said that we're easily distracted.
1: No, no way at all. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: goodness me. When when sleep, you know. Yeah, that's not the guy. Yeah. Brilliant. Gosh, we're sort of jumping around in the story a little bit here we do, yeah. I think we need
1: to uh, I think we need to talk about uh, the red-headed league reference yes, which is very early in the book and it sets up the entire point uh, of all these heck- all the heckling. The motive for the heckling is uh, back to the poker game, really, isn't it? And it's it's the deaf man's uh, way of stacking the deck in his favour yep. and putting the odds uh, against the police in them sorting out um uh, finding his crime. Although you kind of help but feel that if you'd not done any of that... they <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't have known anyway. Yeah. I mean, he's all, Well, that's the point of him. He's almost like... Too much of a smart arse. Yeah,
2: he really enjoys coming up with these wild, clever schemes, where, where, and yeah. Whereas if he just did one thing really well, it'd be fine.
1: All he needed to do here is set his bomb in the stadium and then rob the bank, and he would have
2: probably got away, away it's with just it. Just a massive show, isn't it? It's the same um, same kind of megalomaniacal thinking that always causes Bond villains to it, create yeah. the the very slow means of killing him. It's it's that sort of mindset, yeah. I guess. But anyway, yeah, that, that's his. His way
1: of getting the, the, the decks stacked. So yeah. he's got all these uh, diversional crimes and uh, the reference to the Red-Headed League was a, a Sherlock Holmes story where the uh, the character was joined and employed by the Red-Headed League to copy manually an encyclopedia in some rented offices for the sole purpose of getting him out his, his own business where his assistant was digging a tunnel. His basement into a bank,
0: which is what happens in this. Which
1: is what happens in this. So it's yeah, it's kind of a double, a,
0: well, the, d- a double
1: analogy. Or, the strange
0: thing is this: in this book, one of the cops, Berkling, is reading the <laughs> red-headed league.
1: <laughs> yeah, you think he'd have, I don't know.
0: Well, they have a bit of sort of like that because some someone's working on the murder, someone's working on the heckling. Code. Yeah, they mm-hmm. don't they, they don't pull it all together. Work, do they? They, oh.
2: They've only heard little bits about each other's cases and haven't really conferred on them, and it doesn't quite click that the, the things are connected does it? And
1: I think it's the references to the hard of hearing and what's its name that uh, eventually he realised it even yeah. with the same individual but, behind the, the heckling
0: but, but taking the red-headed league even further the, the deaf man can't resist actually sending hordes of redheads round to <laughs> <Yeah>. annoy <laughs> Dave Raskin the first victim at his loft does he
1: send him a load of chairs and then food? He sends him
0: ba- so poor Dave Raskin who's getting these threatening calls to get out or I'll kill you he's getting sent envelopes oh, yeah. that he hasn't ordered like like industrial amounts of stationery <laughs> all with his address on it saying the vacant loft company or something like that he gets a load of caterers turning up loads of chairs and tables a load of musicians including a band leader with a hitler mustache apparently <laughs> that's right and they're all turning up to say well, you ordered it and he's going no it's a the, the it's de- quite funny
1: character isn't he uh... Old Raskin. He's
2: fairly entertaining, uh, Raskin I Although mean, he does a bit of a sex pest. He is the, pretty much like a dreadful pervert as well. Well, I think <laughs> this is
0: this is the, the the trigger to to mentioning what in discussions with uh, my partner Lorraine is. Known in the industry as breasted boobily, the idea that when male writers write women, mm. they tend to do this thing where they overemphasize physical things. Mm. Rather than sort of talking about someone looking nice, everything becomes about usually the boobs. And Ed McBain, you can't get away from it in this book, is really bad for it.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you get it in quite a few of the, particularly the earlier novels. Um, a Man of the Boob,
0: clearly. <laughs> and he sort of has this this girl that works for Dave Raskin, and she's very... Well, she's described in some detail, <sighs> and her boobs are the main thing it's like. And I'm just looking now. This is from later in the book. This isn't even the the worst bit of a description of this character of Margarita, and I'm just going to read it out. Raskin went back to the loft on Culver Avenue, where Margarita was packing their stock preparatory to the move, flinging her unbound breasts about with renewed fervour. Just... <laughs> 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 How, with even the basic sense of human anatomy, if you've just looked at a woman, Mm. regardless of size Mm. of endowment, you'd be thinking, if I wanted this person to do a job, say, pack this chest full of folded dresses, the least efficient way to do it is to (laughs) wave your chest around with, as they say, renewed fervour. It's... It's sort of rubbish, really. And... Then there's the girl that the deaf man picks up and she's described similarly. And there's also a bit where the bank manager of the the bank that's the target. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about him, yeah. We have seen that, not His assistant or someone else who works at the bank comes over and she's got a top button undone and he's looking at her boobs and he's talking about (coughs) pinching her bottom. Although he has Steve Carella thinking about pinching someone's bottom as well earlier on. And what I did find... It was a bygone age. Well, it certainly was, which, you know, it's... It's the only excuse you can give it, really. Mm. It's it's very difficult to read now when you notice it. This book, out of all of the ones we've read, it's it's not even the description of a femme fatale or anything like that, no. which is sort of intrinsic to the older sort of detective and noir stories. What's this he... is just boobs are great lads, aren't they?
2: It did there is a bit of that about it, yeah, which is not not what we encourage. Once you get to his his sexy novels, well, yeah,
0: but uh... oh God, <laughs> well. There's a reviewer called Marilyn uh, Stacio who wrote reviews for the New York Times, I think, for a long time. She was a crime fiction right. reviewer. And I listened to a podcast where she was being interviewed. And there's a good bit about Ed McBain on it, a very short section.
1: What's she saying? So I, new... sh-
0: I shall read out what it is. This, I must say, I found on the This Is Criminal podcast on the episode called The Gatekeeper. And huh. I'll put the link to that on the Twitter feed so you can go and listen to the the original as it were because Marilyn Stasio has a very amusing laugh as well, (laughs) very engaging to listen to. So she describes this meeting or reading this Ed McBain book and she says it was a woman who was leaning against this patterned wallpaper and it looked like a jungle and he was comparing her to some kind of jungle animal cat and I remember I met him and I remember laughing he was really really mad he followed me down (laughs) wherever we were and he said, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't laugh. And I said, well, you should write better women. <laughs>
2: and then he did.
0: He really did write. And I must say, towards the end, he was writing really good female characters. Hmm. So it took uh, it took the crime reviewer, Marilyn Stasio, actually going up to him, yep. just laughing in his face <laughs> to upset him <laughs> to the point where he actually thought, well, perhaps I could write a bit more.
2: Well, we, we must certainly thank her for doing that.
0: Yeah. So it's a very amusing story. That's so great. All hail Marilyn. Mm. Yeah so let's discuss the end of this book because the TV se- TV episode is very low key mm. it sort of plays yeah. on the main bits of the crime the, the start the middle the end but it doesn't do what the book does which is full scale terrorism when you think about uh, absolutely, it absolutely yeah so it's not just one man crime wave. do you have like a dozen
1: bombs is it something something like that isn't it around the city
0: yeah he actually puts a bomb in Well, the police are already engaged in crowd control for a huge ball game, and he puts a bomb there that goes off as people are. He puts two
1: inside, so therefore people are leaving, and then he leaves one in one of the main exits, and that goes off. And it yeah doesn't really it doesn't go into any detail at all about like the 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 sort of
2: fallout from. But
1: you're led to believe that it would be. Dozens, if not hundreds, of there would fatalities. certainly be a
2: lot of fatalities. I mean, they're they're, they're calling in the national guard and everything, aren't they? It's a yeah. it's a very serious kind of terrorist situation. So. And, he, that, and yet he's
1: he's totally he doesn't go.
0: Into, stra- I just found it strange he doesn't go into any detail. Although well, I think the funny thing is with this, reading it now from our perspective in a time when there's been a lot more terrorist incidents, that this is similar to. Even if you include like the one-off bombs, like the the Manchester bomb last uh. year, which which took lots of lives, this is lots of bombs in a very populous place, uh. planted very deliberately. In fact, one of the things that Edmund McBain does in this book is describing quite some detail how to make these bombs. <laughs> you know, I I assume he's missed steps out in there. It can't be as simple as he says, but it's it's a it's just a campaign to actually. Uh not just distract the police but actually cause things that are very very damaging to Mm. to human life the the ball game one's terrifying because stadiums then wouldn't have seen anything like this they wouldn't have been prepared for mass evacuation Mm. and we know the side effects of what goes wrong when stadiums go wrong and so uh, that and could have been a story. That would nowadays that would be the story itself, yeah, wouldn't uh, it? The terrorism aspect,
2: and that's just, just the distraction in this. But uh, yeah, it's a mixture of different kinds of devices, well, the explosive devices and incendiary ones as well, aren't yeah. they, mm. to cause different kinds of mayhem in different areas, just to to make things even more difficult for everyone. So yeah,
1: in the, in the TV episode, they were just smoke bombs, weren't they? More that's or less, how they yeah. Kind of yeah got to, just, to, like
2: minor mischief to yeah. slightly.
1: But yeah, there's one in a theater, a cinema. In this, wasn't the cinema? Yeah,
0: I think it even says that one. One of the ones in the cinema or the theater is placed near the poles to try and cause structural damage mm. and stuff like that, which would that could collapse whole buildings and things mm. like that. So he's he is a baddie, the oh, deaf man. He, really he is, is not. He's he's not just in it for the money as easily as possible. Get in and get out. He's, he wants to, you know, really ensure he's going to get away with it and does not care. Yeah, what happens because he
2: he can occasionally seem like quite a sort of fun character in the sense that that there's a a certain larger than life sort of aspect to him but McBain is definitely making sure that you know he's like out and out just Mm. evil as well that there's no sort of oh well you know he's he's, he's definitely really good fun for the series because I remember from
1: this point on you were kind of you know you, you, you'd you obviously get a couple that didn't have him after a death but then you'd be like oh when you when you opened one and you realised he was back you was like oh what's he going to be up to this time yeah uh, normally some other grandiose thing. yeah
2: a lot of his plots have a certain amount of whimsy to them but he's also capable of like utter just depraved act of evil um how mm-hmm. I many yeah, what do
1: you say six or something six or something I think like that. I'd have, I'd have something, something right. like
2: that so yeah and it,
0: oh, it covers more
2: or less all
1: of
0: of the the run of it, right? Yes,
1: yeah, so probably one one in every five or six from this
0: point on, something like that. Might be something like yeah, that. It might yeah. be sounds about something right. Oh. But for every super villain that you have with a super scheme and the chaos and distraction and getting out all the firemen. There's a nice chapter or part of a chapter in this where you you see the the structure of how the fire department works. It's almost like, oh, you could have written those as well. You could have done Mm. a fire department series, Ed. (laughs) That would have been amazing. It would have been the London's burning to the bill of (laughs) of the 87th Precinct. Crikey. But, yeah, for all of that, the solution at the end, the way that the the scheme is foiled (laughs) ultimately, not the bombs, they happen, Mm. but they're getting away with the money, is... Chance and coincidence, yeah, as,
1: as it often is with these. Uh, and it, it, when you read in the end and how it all goes, uh, tits up for a better expression. Well, that's probably uh, what Ed would have written. <laughs> sure it, 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 it was, um, yeah, it was just a Bobby on the beat, wasn't it? Yeah. A, a totally chance encounter, and yeah, uh, a slightly
2: dope patrolman who just
1: really fancies
2: an ice cream, yeah, yeah. you
1: know, it's kind of. As it sometimes is with these uh, these criminals in real life as well, the uh, the, the false
2: plates on the car, or, yeah, or, you d- know, d- just, d- just some d- random. There's d- enough to, to sort of uh, arouse his uh, suspicions, and then he actually becomes a bit less dopey and kind of realizes what that something is a false An ice cream van
1: with the wrong plates, with two men in it, Ooh, yeah,
0: trying to get on a ferry for, for f- some yeah, reason. Yeah, and all, all they'd have it. had to do is actually buy some ice creams. Yeah, they could have bought a box of ice creams it wouldn't have mattered what people asked for then you could have just gone oh we're out of them we've all we've got is cornettos yeah so that's some, just or, cul- they call, or, or they could have just cul- had those. a vehicle that yeah. nobody would have
1: ever just wanted just some plain
2: yeah. unmarked van where they wouldn't have had to buy all the uniforms there. you get the impression that the deaf man quite enjoys the, the pageantry of like yeah. uh, ordering the the uh, costumes and getting everyone dressed up and the, the elaborate sort of...
0: well he goes to a shop does, a, costume, yeah. a costume shop run by a man called Douglas McDouglas <laughs> That's
1: right, <laughs> and he even <laughs> tells him what he's gonna do. <laughs> he's a, he, he says do. That he pretends he's directing a mu-
0: movie, or oh, what's it called, the Great Bank Robbery. Yeah, it's this big fat man who wanted to be an actor but ended up running a costume shop, a really tatty costume <laughs> shop. But it's called Douglas MacDouglas. <laughs> I love this when Ed McBain has to make up character names because one of the ways they find out who the corpse is at the start of the book is they interview a guy in a bar whose name is Christopher Random <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah. was <laughs> literally like he thought what can I call this character I can't think of an actual name uh, Random? He's a brilliant piss head character isn't he oh, she calls him
1: sir all the time you know, they don't know whether to believe him because he's kind
2: of clearly permanently drunk, this yeah, he, guy. But, he just sort of uh,
0: says, Christopher Random, Scourge of the Orient.
2: <laughs> as, as, as we always sort of, yeah, we always manage to, to find these amazing sort of little one-shot characters who crop up in these things, and he's one of the best, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, I
0: don't think he's going to last much longer, this guy, really, given mm. how much he drinks in the short period where yeah, Corella yeah. and Hernandez are interviewing him. Yeah, he has like four drinks in about two minutes <laughs> <laughs> with his catchphrase of drink hearty lads this stuff here puts hair on your clavicle it does ah <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. he's good value isn't it? Is, he but is. Like he is. sets them
0: on the right trail though, doesn't he, he certainly does he's very much a functioning alcoholic because he's, he's compass mentis enough to actually recognise a photo in the paper and ring up the police but they find him in a bar and uh, you get that excellent scene Christopher Random
1: yeah, no, a good character.
0: Okay, well, we, we really need to get towards summing up this one, really. Well, we... I'm sure we've got more to talk about in the bonus episode, which we will do afterwards, especially the book covers as Steve-O has hinted at the majesty of the one that he's, <laughs> he's got. But I think for the first time in 2018, I need to fire up Kenneth, really. I did do a short solo episode earlier in the month to just keep things ticking over, where I did... Dig out some archive material about where Kenneth came from, and so you all know a little bit more about him now. But we're going to fire him up, and I'm going to work out what is that our a true story. It is. You haven't heard it, have you? No. I'll play you. It, I'll play it later. <laughs> so you, you know, I can't keep that from you. You need to know the important Kenneth information that's mm. been discovered in the um, dusty archives. Dusty
1: archive. I mean, that would be another good character <laughs> there. <isn't laughs>
0: it? Could yeah. be a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> dusty
1: archive. Got some. Imp- that would have important. been a good name
0: in about 1964. Just the
1: archive. He's got some important artefacts that uh, are critical <laughs> to the
0: solving <laughs> of a crime. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's got the surname archives. I wonder if anyone's got the surname random, to be honest. That seems more likely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Isn't there something
0: random? I've never met anyone with a surname random. No. Uh, yeah, I wonder if um, Random House Publishers is. Mm. Named I was thinking that as well Random. about yeah. Ken Random and Sandra House. Or <laughs> well, it's Ken and Sandra again, like Ken and Sandra Internet. One of our episode titles from way back when. So ratings wise, well, we, we need to get up the. Uh, we need well, We need to, to do need the to, ratings without knowing. We need the, to uh, check Kenneth's output. So I'm just going to look that up now. I'm. Okay, so I've got Kenneth's scores up here. I'm not going to go through all of them this time, save to say the last three books, Till Death, got a very low score of 69, Please Shields. King's Ransom was our high point so far with 89, and Give the Boys a Great Big Hand was 83, Please Shields. If you want to look at the scores, Kenneth's output is available in digital format at the blog, and you can visit it there and it will be updated after this as well. So I think I'm going to go over to Steve-O to see what his summing up of Oof. the heckler is. Oof. He made a woof Oof. Noise. Yeah, well, exciting.
1: yeah, no. Was, yeah, just uh, you know, it's a, it's a uh, big deal going first in a summing up, but it is. Um, no, an excellent, an excellent book, very good to read back because uh, you remember the Deaf Man novels
0: Slight, slightly differently
1: <laughs> than the other ones somehow. I don't know. Mm. The well, there's re-
0: not much recurs other than the police characters in these series. Mm. Yeah, well. so
1: when you get something else recurring, uh, it's quite nice, and I like the um, also the uh, length of time spent following the, the criminal element uh, mm. as much as the the law enforcement agencies. I will just
0: say one thing, just to interrupt, sorry. I've remembered in terms of throwbacks to earlier books and things that recur in this book, we get a throwback to the very first book because there's stuff about. Miscolo, the clerical officer, is trying to raise money for the widow of one of the cops shot in the first book. That's true. The very first book. Plus, we also, from that same story, and he has appeared since, he was in King's Ransom, we get news twat Cliff Savage turning up. Oh, yes. As well, making a big hoo-ha about not being allowed to to get the story for his newspaper.
2: Getting very short shrift from uh, Mr. Corella.
0: Yeah. So, sometimes (laughs) these characters crop up, but I think, yeah, villain-wise, no one other than the deaf man.
1: Exactly. So I'm going to go, I think it's a 9 out of 10, 90 police shields. Good
0: Lord, Christ. I will
1: go. I will go.
0: I'll I'll go next then, just to to mix things up and give Morgan some thinking time. And thus denying myself thinking time. (laughs) Oops. I don't know whether I'd go as, as high as 90. Oh gosh, it's a tricky one. I'm so annoyed at the moment with the awareness of the writing of the female characters that's really rankled a little bit, but...
1: I think they're always a bit bad in all of them, though, aren't they? Yeah. They did the earlier
0: ones, I think. I know, it's it's a tricky one. I just think in this one it's very, very clumsy. Clearly it was, uh, you know, on Ed's mind while he was (laughs) writing this at the time. He was really, really thinking about boobs. So, if we factor that in, and we factor in that it is... strange sort of it's almost a two-part novel between the initial setup and then the Mm. big event of the the bombs and the stuff at the end which is is amazing almost more modern than modern really as i say about the terrorism and stuff i think i'll go for a solid 85 police shields that's where i'm going that's what i'm doing marvelous so morgan Okay,
2: yeah, well, I, as you say, I I totally agree about the the, the writing of the woman in this, which is always going to knock a few police shields off. Yeah. Um, you
0: can't expect to retain your police shields with that kind it, of action. I,
2: you know, I, I know that was fairly typical of the crime fiction of the era, but that doesn't really excuse it. It's still, you know, it's not the it, best, is it? It
0: wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't just quite so clumsy it, in this. It's, yeah. It just yeah
2: that's it um but on the other hand an introduction of a, a great character who you know we're gonna have a lot of fun with and some big kind of cinematic plotting and uh yeah it's like a lot to enjoy uh, I, I don't want to mark it too high because i feel like future deaf man novels are going to outstrip it yeah we, um, we, we know, do have absolutely. a
0: tendency to, to mark everything quite that's high,
2: it don't we? i'm still gonna mark it pretty high because it's it's a fifth. A bit of a kind of well, uh,
1: just on the height, th- I've not ruled out as having to go both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, we might have right. to, if we do, we, we might have to recalibrate.
0: Yeah, we, we need we to can... get into Kenneth's cogs and, and, yeah. and shift some of the bits around.
2: So, I, I feel like it's an important point in the series. It's maybe not my favorite of the ones that we've read so far, although it's very good. I'm going to go for a solid 82 police shields.
0: 82. Okay, mm. what does Kenneth's ticker tape Tell us about this. Well, it tells us. And do we round up or round down? Well, we round down when we use <laughs> Kenneth. That's just the, the way the mechanism used to work. We couldn't round up. Rounding
1: down. <laughs> I've, never, I've never, heard anything so <laughs> stupid
2: in my life.
0: <laughs> Look, these are police shields. They're not
2: numbers. Well, you know, in in, in pre decimal days, we I, always I round work it a down. Job oh, where
1: we round down actually, and I think it's absolutely <laughs> absurd.
0: Yeah. well there you go then.
1: you the you've... government, so uh,
0: anyhow. <laughs> you couldn't wear 0. 0.3 of a police shield on your... Mind you, you couldn't wear no, 85 no. of them. No, so, yeah. <laughs> but
1: You'll be, a... <laughs> <laughs> be very good at solving crimes, you to get through the door. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: might not get shot as much though. <laughs> That's true.
1: You, have um, to, you have to yell all your questions from a flipping <laughs> giant <laughs> horse you have to ride around on. A shire horse
0: because of the weight of police shields. <laughs> Get hoisted on <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> it's going well. Yeah. Yeah, riding
1: around on your horse. It's got 87 police br- horse brasses attached to the
0: side of it. You make a bit of a cl-
1: clanking noise, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh dear. Going yeah. around the streets of Isla. <laughs>
0: But 85 is, is the score which yeah, I think is a very respectable very score good. it is
2: it's it's close to the top isn't it but yeah, not very yeah. very
0: close it's it's up there with with the best of them you see I think
1: yeah, some of the future ones that in my mind will score very highly have because this yeah he does this but delivers a bit more some mm. of the, some of the, the later ones so you can tell that don't have as much creepiness
0: to them. you can tell mm. McBain relishes using the deaf man as a yeah. way of, of having a new opportunity to tell stories mm. in mm. a different way and to really do something beyond the procedural thing hmm. in this, it gives him a chance to sort of really get quite baroque. Yeah. The, complex. Expands the
2: scope, doesn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's tremendous. Another good,
0: uh, I always quite like the ones
1: where they don't actually solve it themselves as well. Like, yeah, so like a total,
0: like a cop on the beat. Mm. Yeah. None of the actual detectives are getting commendations in this book, are they? <laughs> no. Really? no. But that patrolman, you would assume would. Mm. So, Good on him.
2: Good on him for just really fancying an ice cream. That an ice cream moment. in it.
0: The end of April, so it must have been <laughs> quite warm. So we'll finish up there. The next book we will be reading and talking about is See Them Die, which is a gang warfare-based one, as far as I can recollect, yeah, but I haven't read it indeed. for a long time. In the interim, we should be doing our episode about High and Low, the Akira Kurosawa film, based on King's Ransom. But until that time... We will say goodbye using our voices like this. Goodbye.
2: Goodbye. Goodbye.